All right, so after Jesus endured an exhausting night, Thursday night, which included him being betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then illegally tried and then perjured, lied about, and then blindfolded and hit and spit on by the religious leaders in their whole lot, the Jewish authorities turned him over early the next morning to the Roman authorities, specifically Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate questioned Jesus of Nazareth one-on-one, and after that, he knew two things. Pilate knew two things. The first thing that he knew is that Caiaphas and Annas and the rest, the religious leaders, they had turned Jesus over out of envy. You can read about that later in Matthew 27, 18. They were so jealous of Jesus, and that's the motivation for handing him over to Pilate. He knew that. And number two, he knew that Jesus was innocent. We saw that last week in John chapter 18, verse 38. We saw that that Pilate actually said, I find no guilt in him. And so if Pilate would have been a man of character and courage and conviction, he would have let Jesus go. That would have been the right thing to do. But Pilate, far from being a man of courage or character or conviction, he was a spineless politician. And all he cared about when he made his decisions were the three most important people to him, me, myself, and I. And so what did he want to do? He wanted to be popular with the crowd. He wanted to win favor with the crowd. So he allowed the crowd to decide Jesus' fate. And we saw that when we ended last week in verses 39 and 40 of John chapter 18. He goes out, he addresses this huge crowd, and Pilate says to them, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, said in derision, and they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas, and Barabbas was a robber. And so instead of choosing to release Jesus, who was not guilty, the crowd wanted Pilate to release Barabbas, who was guilty. He was a robber, he was a thief, and also Mark tells us he was a murderer. Okay, so just a quick review from last week, but right now, if you're looking at John 19, verse one, can you please say amen? All right, so then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. All right, so regarding the whipping, the flogging, the scourging of Jesus Christ, if you read Matthew and Mark, Pilate's order to scourge him seems to have gone with his order to crucify him. But when you read John, like we just did, Pilate's order to scourge Jesus here in verse one, it came before he sentenced Jesus to death, which is not gonna happen until verse 16. So the question is, which was it? Was Jesus scourged before he was sentenced to death, as John is telling us? Or was Jesus scourged after he was sentenced to death, as Matthew and Mark tell us? And ladies and gentlemen, because the Bible has no errors, because the Bible does not contradict itself, listen, please hear this, God is absolutely perfect, God is infallible, and so his word, it follows that his word is perfect and infallible in the original manuscripts. There's no contradictions in the Bible, so which one was it? Both. Absolutely The answer to that question is both. The first thing we gotta understand is that there were three levels of Roman scourgings. 
All right, so D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he actually lists the Latin words there, uh, which I can't pronounce. Now, I know that uh, the Italian language is based on Latin, so I even looked it up on Google. My wife always hears me playing these words, trying to pronounce them so I don't mess it up with you guys. And and even in Italian, I was like, no way I can begin to say these things. We actually had an Italian lady come up and pronounce the first one with the accent and everything. It was beautiful. But since the only thing I have inside of myself right now that is Italian is the bread I ate last night, I am not gonna try to say those words. But here's, you get the idea, right? All kidding aside, bad, worse, worst of all. So when you read, I encourage you to do this. When you read all the Gospels together, when you read Matthew and Mark with John, Here's what you find out. You find out that John, we just read it in verse one, he records the first level, the less severe scourging, whipping, and then Matthew and Mark, the last one, the one that's worst of all. Regarding all this, D.A. Carson wrote this. This means that Jesus received a, what's the word there? Second scourging. The wretched, whatever the Latin word is, after the sentence of crucifixion was past. I thought this was fascinating. And so if you want a reference, D.A. Carson, his commentary called The Gospel According to John. And then John MacArthur has a great book called One Perfect Life. He puts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together. And so One Perfect Life, MacArthur also brings out the two scourgings. So if you're here and you never heard that Jesus was scourged twice, guess what? Now you have even more to thank Jesus for in your redemption. So the first scourging here in John 19:1 was bad. The second scourging recorded in Matthew and Mark, worst of all. It was so severe, ladies and gentlemen. So after Pilate gives the sentence of death, he has Jesus scourged a second time. That scourging, that third level, was so bad, it resulted in at least two things. Number one, Jesus was so exhausted, so beaten, so weak, he could not carry his cross, the cross beam, all the way to Golgotha in Latin Calvary. By the way, you want to know why churches call themselves Calvary? It's because it's the place of the skulls, the place where our redemption occurred and Jesus shed his blood for us. Great name. I know I'm a little bit biased, but I like Calvary. (laughs) And so, Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull. He's so weak, he's been beaten so bad that second time he can't make it. So you guys remember the name of the guy they pulled from the crowd? Simon of Cyrene from Gospel of Luke. He helps out. But the second result of this third level severe beating, the second beating after Pilate sentenced him to death was that Jesus was so exhausted, he was so weak that he hung on the cross for only six hours, which is, by the way, as you study Roman history, they crucified thousands of people, but you study Roman history, that's fast. A lot of these Roman uh, prisoners, they would hang on the cross for days before they died. But Jesus, beaten so bad, he passes in six hours. Regarding these scourgings, the whip the Romans used was called the flagrum. The flagrum uh, had these several uh, thongs, 
and the thongs were attached to a wooden handle. So we'll put a picture up there so you guys can see the instrument of torture that they're called, the soldiers were called lictors, that these lictors administered to his back, the lashes. This is the instrument of torture right here. And so the thongs, the straps, had metal balls and pieces of sharp animal bones that were intertwined uh, with them to inflict more damage on the victim. How many of you guys have seen the movie Passion of the Christ? Okay, so half of you. The other half, you, you need to see it. I encourage you to watch it on Good Friday. Um, but I forced myself yesterday as I was getting ready to walk up here for the Saturday night service. I went to YouTube. I forced myself to watch the scourging of Jesus from the Passion of the Christ. And at one point, I, I, I was like, forcing myself to watch it because ladies and gentlemen it's accurate and so you know what happened Jesus wrists were tied to a post he wasn't able to block the blows his bare back is there and when awful blow after awful blow was administered to his back the sharp pieces of animal bone and the metal balls would lodge into his back and when they pulled it pieces of flesh would would just spray everywhere by the way, this is why, in all seriousness, this is why we have a children's ministry. Moms and dads, take your kids next door so they can learn about Jesus in a beautiful way. Um, not to say this is not beautiful, but on a, on a level that they can understand and they can appreciate. But we're all adults here, okay? So when these third-level scourgings occurred, you need to know that sometimes the victim's entrails could be seen. Read about it in Roman history. And so... Many people died from the third level scourging. And the question is why? Why in the world would Jesus Christ, the Son of God, allow these men to beat him the way that they beat him? And Isaiah the prophet has the answer. All right, so everybody look at the bottom of the screen, the bottom right, right before New King James Version. Can everybody shout out the date, please? Can you see that? So if you're new to the Bible, this is Old Testament, 700 years before Christ was even born. I just wanted to emphasize it again. You hear me say it a lot. There is no book on the planet like this book. This is the only book on the planet in the original manuscripts that was breathed out by God, that holy men of God wrote and spoke and moved as they wrote it, they were carried along as the wind carries a sailboat along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's no other book on the planet that can, can predict, prophesy certain details of something that's gonna happen and then see that literally fulfilled in history. I want you to appreciate what you have in your hands. God's word and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies have already been fulfilled regarding Christ's first coming. That means that all the prophecies regarding his second coming are gonna happen. And Maranatha, we need to be ready for when the Lord comes. But back to his passion, he was wounded for our transgressions. Okay, why, did, why in a world did he allow the Roman soldiers to open up his back with this flagrum? It was because you and I are sinners. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And so he was wounded out of love. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, that's punishment of our peace was upon him. And by his what? We are healed. Stripes, we are healed. And so by the time all the stripes had been administered, Jesus was a bloody mess. But he did it for you. 
and he did it for me. We deserve to be punished for our sins, but he was punished in our place. He suffered and died as a substitute. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so in verse one of John 19, the whipping was less severe, still hurt, still blood, and the Roman soldiers are just getting started. Look at verse two, please, John 19, two. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, right, ha, 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 and struck him with their hands. So the Roman soldiers that were stationed at the Antonia Fortress, which is the northwest part of the Temple Mount, we'll show you the area if you go, to, go with us to Israel. So they were there, right, in big number because of the Passover feast, and they were there to stop any kind of riot that might happen among the Jewish zealots. And so what did they do? They hear about this guy who's accused of sedition against their Caesar. And so I want you to picture it in your mind, ladies and gentlemen. There they are, these big bullies, and they're surrounding Jesus like a pack of wolves ready to move in on their prey. And so Jesus is in the middle, and all these soldiers are coming up to him. And they're thinking, what should we do with this king of the Jews? Well, here's what they did. First thing he did is they fashioned a crown, right? The idea is, as they're mocking him, every king needs a crown. So they go out and they find a date palm. And they twist together a crown of thorns. Two commentaries I read this week said that these thorns of date palms, the spikes, can actually grow as much as 12 inches long. We don't know if it was 12 inches, 6 inches, 3 inches, but nonetheless, um, they fashion a crown of thorns, ram it on his head. I want to keep reminding you, he did it for you. And then every king needs a robe. So they find this reddish purple robe, the, the color of royalty, probably a military cloak because it's the Antonia Fortress and they throw it over his shoulders. Every king needs a scepter. So they go out and they find a reed and they put it in Jesus' right hand. Can you see your Lord standing there? And they're mocking him. Matthew says that they take the reed, right, and they pound the crown of thorns deeper into his skull. Mark tells us that they're paying homage to him. Hail, king of the Jews, and they stand up and spit in his face. And then John, we just read it, says they hit him with their hands. Isaiah foresaw all of it. Check it out, Isaiah chapter 50, verse six. If we could go to the next screen, please. I gave my back to those who strike, 700 BC, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And so the Messiah suffers for us. And I wonder if Jesus, as he was being whipped, as he's, they're pulling out his beard, as they're spitting in his face and kneeling down. I wonder if he thought about that. Jesus knew the scriptures. Or I wonder if he thought about this one in Isaiah chapter 52 and um, verse 14. Can we go to the next screen, please? Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, look at this, 
his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so by the time these bullies, these Roman soldiers were done with Jesus, these wolves, by the time they were done tearing him apart, you gotta understand that his face was so bruised and puffed and bloodied that his own mother would not have been able to recognize him. His body so disfigured and so deformed. But he did it for you. And he did it for me. Look at verse four. It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, so he goes back out to the crowd, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He's saying it again. This guy's innocent. And so Jesus came out before the crowd, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, why is Pilate doing this? He wants to somehow arouse some pity in the hearts of this crowd because he thinks Jesus is innocent and he wants to release Jesus. You remember, I already said this, right? He knew the Jewish religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him out of envy. Matthew 27, 18. He knew that Jesus was innocent. John chapter 18, verse 38. And not only that, does anybody remember Pilate's wife? What did she do? She had a dream, more like a nightmare, and she wrote her husband a note. Matthew talks about this. And in the note, it says this. So Pilate's wife sends a note to Pilate, quote, he opens up the note, can you see this? Having nothing, have had nothing to do with that righteous man, she says to him, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's like, I don't want to condemn this guy, so he brings pitiful-looking Jesus out in a pitiful way, trying to arouse pity from this crowd so they'll change their mind and not want to execute him. Well, let's see what happens. Look at verse six. And when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He says it again, no guilt in him. Verse seven, the Jews answered him, well, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the what? The son of God. All right, what law are these religious leaders referring to? Leviticus 24, 16. Here it is. God's word, by the way. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord... This is under the old covenant law. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And you guys remember in a former study that we had here in John chapter 10, Jesus is preaching and the religious leaders are there and others in the crowd and he says, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they'll never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. He says, the father who is greater than all, has given them to me and no one's gonna snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are what? One. I and the Father are one. The disciples are like, yeah. Religious leaders are like picking up rocks to stone him. Why? Leviticus 24, 16. 
Jesus sees them. He says, what good work are you going to stone me for, right? The idea is, because I gave a blind guy sight, a deaf guy the ability to hear, a mute lady the ability to speak, right? A cripple the ability to walk. Are you going to stone me and kill me for that? And the Jews who picked up the stones, they said to him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, made yourself God. So these guys really believed that Jesus was a fake and that Jesus deserved to die for blasphemy. Let's see how it all plays out. Look at verse eight now. It says, when Pilate heard this statement, right, that he makes himself to be the son of God, he was even more afraid. Okay, he's already afraid because he got the note from his wife. But now he's even more afraid when he hears son of God. Why? Because Pilate was a believer in Yahweh, the true God of the Old Testament. Is that why he's afraid? Hardly. At best, Pilate is a superstitious, uh, polytheistic Roman pagan. And so he doesn't want to be cursed by the quote-unquote gods, little g, for putting an innocent man to death. So he's nervous. He's afraid. Verse 9 And so Pilate entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you know, being all egotistical, you're not gonna speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus doesn't even flinch. And he answered him, you would not have you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. All right, so let's hit the brakes. There's a lot in verse 11, a lot to unpack. Let's think this through. Question, who was the one middle of the night, Thursday night, Garden of Gethsemane, who betrayed Jesus and handed him over to the Jewish temple police. Judas. He handed Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. Now, yes, there was Roman guards there, but they were, back, they were there to back up the Jewish temple police in case there was any kind of riot. Okay, so Judas hands Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. That's not what Jesus just said to Pilate. He said, the one who handed me over to you, Pilate, the Roman authorities, he has the greater sin inference than you do, Pilate. Okay, so who was the one, the Jewish guy, who handed Jesus over to Pilate, none other than the high priest Caiaphas? So Caiaphas had the greater sin than Pilate. Why? Because he's the high priest of Israel. (laughs) Under the old covenant, that's a ministerial position that God ordained because he had the scriptures he had the light and so he should have known better but but here's what I want you to hear I want you to hear this that even though Pilate at best is a polytheistic Roman pagan superstitious Pilate still sinned against the Lord Caiaphas greater sin Pilate still sinned 
And here's what I want you to hear also, that Pilate was absolutely responsible for his sin. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but think this through with me. Because I don't want you to be here this, this uh, afternoon and to think that Jesus is just this weak little, helpless, beaten down, humiliated victim that is you know, at the mercy of the whims of the Roman authorities. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so there's two principles that I want to exegete, if you will, out of 11. And the first one is, God is sovereign. God is in complete control. And I, I, I want to stop here for a little while because here's what I know. There's a lot of you guys out there and you're going through difficult times and hardships and pain and trouble and sorrow. And you're starting to think that life's getting the best of me or whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, let this go from your head to your hearts and down to your feet. And that is that your God is sovereign. Your God is in control. Keep your eyes absolutely on him. Okay, so what does it mean regarding the passion of the Christ? It means that God was in control of the whole situation. He was working out his predestined plan. And so Jesus said this to Pilate. He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, the only reason you have any power over me is because my father gave you that power. God is sovereign. Now I want you I told you we're gonna hit the brakes. Hold your place in John 19. Go on over to Acts 4. I want you to see how this plays out in the book of Acts. Now, some of you are new to the Bible. Where are we in history? Not far from the resurrection of Christ. So when you're in Acts 4, as you're turning from John 19 to Acts 4, you're, you're, you're going forward months and months, right? So the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus has already happened. The ascension of Jesus has already happened. Sun went up, Spirit of God came down. The day of Pentecost, church is born. The church, the early church, by the way, if you're new to Calvary, you're thinking about making this your church home, we pattern this local church after the early church. And Acts 2.42 says that they, the early church, were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, communion, and prayers. And as they were doing those four things, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved if you got a problem with a mega church, then you got a problem with the church in Acts because it went from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 to where they couldn't even count everybody who was coming. Why? Because the Spirit of God was on the move and working and blessing. And so what happens here is that Peter and John are out and they're sharing Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in Jerusalem. And they apprehend them. And they pull John and Peter to stand before None other than the Sanhedrin. We're talking about Caiaphas. He's named in Acts 4. Annas, that old corrupt guy that ran the scam on the court of the Gentiles, he's named as well. And the other religious leaders. And there's John and Peter standing before, back months ago, the ones that Peter was so afraid of. The ones in the midst of where they were on the courtyard, Jesus denied his I'm sorry, Peter denied his Lord three times. But here's what you gotta understand. This is so applicable to your life. Peter in Acts 4 is a changed man. And you know why? Because the resurrected Christ appeared to him and restored him back into ministry. 
And not only that, because the day of Pentecost, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, different sermon, right? But in Acts 2, it says Peter's filled with the Spirit. You keep reading, it says Peter's filled with the Spirit. You keep reading in Acts, Peter's filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, wherein is excess. In the Greek, continue to be filled with the Spirit. Somebody says, I got filled with the Spirit in 1963. <laughs> Yay, are you filled with the Spirit today? Are you overflowing with the Spirit of God today? Ladies and gentlemen, that is what's gonna cause there to be a revival and a spiritual awakening. It's the fullness of the Spirit, why? Because it's not by our might nor by our power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's when revival comes. And so Peter's full of the Holy Spirit and he gives this bold witness for Jesus Christ. It must have felt so good in front of Caiaphas and in front of Annas. And so they're taken back because these are uneducated men. They're always pharisaical, always looking down their noses, even though Caiaphas and Annas were Sadducees. They're just so, so self-righteous, right? And so they threaten them and they release them. Peter and John then go to a prayer meeting and they walk into this prayer meeting. This is where we're gonna pick it up in Acts chapter four, starting in verse 23. It says that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, verse 24, Acts 4, 24. And when they, the prayer group, heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, if you have ESV, shout out the next two words, please. Sovereign Lord. God is sovereign, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, you, you guys get the sense of what's going on here? They're praying and now they're gonna pray the scriptures. No one's pulling out Psalm 2 scroll right now. They're just saying it because the word's in their heart. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Still praying, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and, who's the next guy? Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel. Now here's where you gotta get. So if you're looking at Acts 4.28, please say amen here. God's sovereign, everybody. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all, again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. And so what in the world is this passage teaching? Everybody, please look at me. It's teaching that Pilate, and the Roman soldiers, and Herod, and the Jewish religious leaders were acting according to the predestined plan of God. 
Now, there's two questions I gotta bring out, out here. There's probably a whole lot more that you'll have later. Okay, but there's two questions I wanna bring out here. Here's the first question. If Pilate and the Roman soldiers and Herod and the Jewish religious leaders are acting according to the predestined plan of God, how do you explain this? Because you guys can answer this. Didn't these guys sin against Jesus, yes or no? Yes. And so here's the question. Does that make God the author of sin? No. Can everybody please say no? Because our God is holy. We just sang about it a little while ago. Our God is perfect. Our God is infinite and eternal. God is separate. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's separate from sin. Okay, so God is not the author of sin. Listen, when he created everything, he said in Genesis, it is very good. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them perfect. He created them sinless. And he created them with a free will. You guys knew where I was going, right? And so you guys know the story. I don't have to reteach it. And so after Adam and Eve sinned against God, ladies and gentlemen, they immediately died spiritually and they began to die physically. They started to get old. Eve's like, honey, I got wrinkles. And Adam's like, yeah, and I got this big belly and all this stuff, right? And so they immediately died spiritually and they needed a blood sacrifice which pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. And they began to die physically. Why? You know it, the wages of sin is death. So ladies and gentlemen, here's what Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Romans 5, 12. For as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world. God didn't bring sin into this world. God is holy. I'm pausing here, you know, for dramatic effect because here's what the culture will tell you. The culture will tell you a lot of them are angry at God. And now they're atheists because they went through a difficult thing and then they blame God because God's, how can God be good? And so they're not even thinking about God now. No, 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 God is good. God is holy. We blew it. For as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And so Adam passed on to his whole progeny, the whole human race, a sin nature and subsequently death. Therefore, you can read it later in our statement of faith, because of the fall, quote, all people, can you guys say all people, are sinful by nature and by choice. That's why we need a savior. Okay, so God is not the author of sin. Second question, if the Jews and the Romans were acting according to the predestined plan of God, then does that mean that God uses us like chess pieces on the board, the chessboard of our lives, moving us around with our, without our consent? Is that true? No. No, 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 no. I got a big, 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 big problem with the, with the phrase without our consent. 
Because God is sovereign, yes, but we are free. We are free. We are free to make choices. We are free to make our decisions, but here's what you gotta understand. Please don't, get, don't miss this. We are responsible for our decisions. And so what's the two principles? We'll put it on the screen. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, humans are responsible. And, and some of you guys are like, I don't understand how those two things can be compatible. Well, I told you that Chuck Smith was one of the five guys that impacted my life um, another one that makes the five is this gentleman, Dr. Norman Geisler, who founded the seminary where I attended um, a few years back. And so I want you to hear this, going a little deeper. This guy's a theologian, but, but please, please, please listen. He's reconciling these two. God's predestination and human free choice are a mystery, but not a contradiction. They go beyond reason, but not against reason. That is, they're not contradictory, but neither can we see exactly how they're complementary. We apprehend each as true, but we do not comprehend how both are true. There's no contradiction in God knowingly predetermining and predeterminately knowing from all eternity precisely what we would do with our free acts. God determined that moral creatures would do things freely. He did not determine that they would be forced to perform free acts. What is forced is not free. And what is free is not forced. That's why we are, title of the book, chosen but free. And so what I'm trying to say is that these two things are compatible. They're compatible regarding the passion of the Christ but they're also compatible in other stories in the Bible. How many of you guys have read the Old Testament story in Genesis of Joseph and the coat of many colors? You remember that? And as you're reading Genesis, our hearts break when Joseph's big brothers are so jealous and envious of him. They begin to mistreat him and they throw him into a pit and they sell him into slavery to the Midianites. And the next thing you know, this godly guy, this godly young man, I, I wanna stress the fact that he knew and loved the Lord, and yet he has a hard life. That's against what you hear on so-called Christian television, but I'm here to share the truth with you that Joseph was a godly guy, and yet he had a very hard life for a very long time. And he's accused of rape. He didn't rape anybody, but he's thrown in prison, and then he's forgotten in prison. But how many of you guys know that God is absolutely sovereign even when life is hard. So what does God do? God in his sovereignty lifts Joseph up to second in command in all of Egypt. And the next thing you know, Joseph with his godly wisdom is storing tons and tons of grain to feed millions and millions of people during a huge Mideast famine. And then his brothers, you remember those guys who mistreated him? They show up many years later. And Joseph says this, as for you, you meant, what's the word? Evil against me. Humans are responsible. But God meant it for good. God is sovereign. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
And so what is this saying? What it's saying is that God is in control of the whole situation, the whole story of Joseph. He was carrying out his predestined plan, even though Joseph's brothers were absolutely responsible for their free actions. And it's the same thing in our story, the passion of the Christ today, Christ's passion. What you gotta understand is that all the difficulty that Jesus is going through for where we are in the Bible, it's all part of God's predestined plan. God's carrying out his plan. But Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, all the rest, they're fully responsible for their actions. And so before I go to verse 12, I just wanna say, listen, as Christians, We need to get point number one from our head to our hearts. Because here's what I know again, a lot of you are going through difficult times. And a lot of you are focusing on your problem instead of on the Lord. And you're forgetting this truth that God is in control. Ladies and gentlemen, hear the word of God. All things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are the called according to his purpose. God's got it. God's got you. He's gonna get you through. He may be using the difficult things in your life right now to make you into the image of Christ, but God's got it. He's all powerful. He's in control. And now we go to verse 12. And so from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Here we go again. They're going over his head to his boss. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And this rocked Pilate. Because if Caesar found out, somehow Tiberius, his boss in Rome, found out that a bunch of Jews turned over a man charged with sedition and his Roman governor down there in Judea didn't do anything about it, Pilate would not only lose his job, he would not have all his goods confiscated. He'd be put to death. Pilate's been outmaneuvered by the Jewish religious leaders and he knows it. And so what does he do? Matthew tells us that what Pilate does is that when he saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took out water. Can you see this guy? He takes out a a pan of water and he washes his hands in front of this crowd of hundreds of people and he says, quote, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Yeah, right, Pilate. You are fully responsible before God. And all of us are fully responsible before God for our sin. How many of you are glad that he was wounded for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Praise the Lord for the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb of God. He took the punishment that we deserved. Verse 13, it goes on to say that when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Right, so Pilate knows he can't win. And so he's just being very um, mocking here. Behold your king. Okay, so imagine this huge Jewish crowd 
they see Jesus come out again, crown of thorns, robe of purple, bleeding. And what is their response? It's not pity. It's pure rage. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, think about this. What was their vision for a Messiah? Strong, powerful, military leader. Like Braveheart. Freedom! Kill them all. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. And they look and they see a beaten down, humiliated, bloodied man who supposedly represents them as Jews. Get rid of him! Crucify him! And that's exactly what they said in our last two verses. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, answered, this is crazy here, especially when the Old Testament teaches that God is king. And these men who are supposed to represent Yahweh say, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. After that is the second scourging. John doesn't talk about it. So today, we saw the fulfillment of John chapter one, verse 11, which is that he came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we saw today. But praise God for the good news of the next verse, that to all who did receive Christ, who believed, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Completely different than verse 11. And so we praise God for Christ's redemption, redeeming those of us who will turn to him in repentance and faith.